Last week, we started our new series in studies in 1 Corinthians. If you haven't listened to it yet, and you, you weren't here last Sunday, I strongly urge you to take a listen on our online. And that uh, full background, not only historical, cultural background, but thematic background will be very helpful to understand. Today, we are actually looking at the introduction part of Apostle Paul's letter. As I mentioned before, this is a second letter, not actually first letter. First letter that he wrote was lost. And he's writing with urgent need to reply, to address to the problems of first Corinth, uh, the Corinthian church at that time. The question that I have is this. Um, when you start a letter, and especially when this is a, some type of problematic conflict resolution or some type of letter like that, how would you start? Keep that in mind that their problem was not only amongst themselves, but with Apostle Paul's suspicion and doubt and disrespect and disregard the authority and qualification of Apostle Paul who founded the church. How would you start? The beginning portion of that introductory paragraph is in, in following of the Greco-Roman ancient letter style, which is a starting with greeting, and usually uh, the Western letter would be um, addressing to the addressee first. So, dear John, and maybe there might be greetings and whatnot, but that you would sign off your name at the very end. The Greco-Roman letter style and format is that you would identify yourself first and to the addressee first, who, to whom you are writing, and then greeting and thanksgiving. So Paul follows this, but there's some uniqueness about what Paul does. In order for us to know and understand the meaning, and I think it will be essential for us to have some review and recap on two root problems of Corinthian church. Many others are symptoms from which, I mean, the, uh, the, these two root problems are from which many other problems emerged. The first one is influence of the worldly wisdom and lifestyle. Simply put, it's a secularization of the world. And this is uh, one of the reasons why I mentioned last week if God is uh, authenticating or, or inspiring someone which he, he doesn't not because the New Testament canonization is complete but if, if he's writing Apostle Paul is still alive and writing with a full authority of Christ it will sound like this so like almost like first Californians 
chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Why? Because when you think about influence of worldly wisdom and lifestyle, the Greek philosophy, um, uh, Athens is more of the university feel to it, but here in Corinth, Greek philosophy was still revered and respected and popular, uh, trendy to a point that they would hire these tutors to learn eloquent speech, different techniques, and wisdoms. And in our days, it would be um, not only the academic of philosophies, probably more to do with secular help, self-help, pop psychology, and, and those motivational books, and how-to books. And then because of the religiosity, rampant idol worships in, in Corinth, uh, sexually, there were not only promiscuous, but it's wanton sexuality, which means the part of the idol worship included sexual relationship with temple prostitutes. And with that kind of thing, that, that style, lifestyle, was pretty much accepted as a way of life. The second thing, undergirding problem, is that I introduced last week was over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is simply put, the study of end times. What kind of view have you have about end times? The realized eschatology is a good thing. Do not live your Christian life only as if today is the end of it all. The live in, in the sense that end time is coming, Christ is coming back, and what Christ has completed and will reward us, actually you could foretaste and experience that, realize that reality. Day to day. Which is a good thing, right? So that when you, when you think about the first, first coming of Christ and second coming of Christ, we're you know, living in a tension. Uh, theologians will say the word is kingdom of God is already here. Now already part. And the second coming would be Kingdom of God is not fully yet. Already, not yet. If you imbalanced, if you are imbalanced in any sense, for example, if you uh, emphasize too much on not yet, you're going to be under-realized eschatology person, which means defeatism. There's nothing I can do. Uh, this world is passing away. I'm just stay put until, wait until Christ comes back or when I, uh, when I die physically so I could see Christ. And there, there is a, so much of passivity and defeatism can be there. Not only in our individual life, but in which the, the society in which we live, we become pathetic rather than being 
salt and light of the world, which is a penetrating power, right? On the other side, there is a emphasis on, overemphasis on already. So think about this. In Corinthians church, one of the primary reasons, as we are seeing in the charismatic churches also too, these days, but you know, compared to the first century, a lot of the phony things are going. But in the first Corinthian church, if you read through today's text, all gifts are abundantly available. Which was a, so, so much a blessing. And think about this. These passionate people, outward spoken, expressive, self-expressive people, having received all these miraculous gifts, all those are gift, gifts are available. Wouldn't that be exciting? To walk into any kind of service, gathering, and there will be a instantaneous healing, miraculous healing, and people who are prophesying, people who are speaking in tongue, interpreting what that speaking in tongue uh, means. All those things were simultaneously going on. The problem was the disorder of worship and ego uh, rising up everywhere. But in that sense, think about how powerful each Christian have, might have felt. As a church as a whole, heaven's here already. We have accomplished everything. God, God has given us the, everything we need, which is, once again, overemphasis. So even nowadays, two types of uh, movement falls into over-emphasized, over-realized eschatology. One is uh, liberal theology. Lately, it's more neoliberal theologians, movements, emphasizing so much of we could make a difference to a point that uh, making society better, contributing to the needs of the society and community as a whole, and city hall and politics, and uh, working with the poor and other other soci- societal needs become so emphasized that we could actually make heaven here, utopia here, and that's a kingdom. God's kingdom has already come, which could be very interestingly. Uh, trendy and popular, but we need to be very careful about not losing the full perspective. The other movement is obviously the charismatic movement. When you are seeking the spiritual gifts, supernatural spiritual gifts, in such a way that it's showy, it's man-centered, it's prideful, and it becomes the spirituality is twisted. The question is really that. That's why we are calling this First Corinthians series uh, as a true spirituality, undergirding theme for that. The question is this. Who is truly spiritually mature person? What does spiritual maturity or spiritual power or authority looks like? The Corinthians have a very 
tainted view. And then Paul coming in, correcting and changing their mindset. So we ought to be, because it's written to people like us, we ought to be ready for that. These messages are radical. We should not just glance over. So even today's passage, um, it's, it's obviously we could see what Paul has in mind in terms of he's aware of Corinthians people, Corinthian Christians are saying heaven is here already for us to experience it fully. Not, not entirely true. And then the power and glory and prosperity are the signs of true spirituality, they're saying. No, that is a wrong concept of wisdom. There's a reason for for this. When they thought about the gospel and Apostle Paul coming into the town, they're widely open for any kind of wisdom. As I mentioned, I'm repeating again, Philosophy, the word philosophy is like the combination of two words. Phileo, to love, love, and Sophie, and Sophia, wisdom. Love of the wisdom, or love of wisdom. So they loved anything, and what Paul preached was uh, one of the wisdoms, and that's why Paul comes in a very different mindset. Having said that, let's go to the first um, verse. The question that we're asking today is, what foundational truth does Paul begin with in his letter? Number one, all believers were called by God's sovereign will and grace. And Paul begins with his letter, identifying himself, following the Greco-Roman Letters form, as I mentioned. Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sosthenes, by the verse 9, uh, he mentions the calling again, by whom you're called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Most of Paul's letters, he starts with that. Paul, an apostle by the will of God or command of Christ, some along the line. So it's not unusual, but what is unusual is he usually lumps into the, uh, his partners, ministry partners and friends he's writing with without much of distinction. Paul, an apostle of Christ, along with Timothy, greet you in the name of Christ, or something like that, right? But in this letter, if you look at, Paul emphasizes by saying uh, to be an apostle of Christ is not by the man's will, human will, but will of God. And he also mentions our brother instead of Skipping the title, emphasizing by, by emphasizing our brother, Sothenes, 
is actually emphasizing his name, right? Sosthenes. Who's Sosthenes? If you look at Acts chapter 18, um, when Paul came to Corinth in the beginning, uh, AD 50, the Jewish religious uh, leader, the synagogue leader, was converted to the gospel, to, to Christianity. And then who substituted to, to the previous leader was the Sosthenes. Sosthenes were actually later on beaten by the crowd. Some were Jewish and some were Greeks. So why is that? Maybe scholars are saying maybe because he was more um, supportive of Paul's ministry instead of taking him out and not having him speak at the synagogue and whatnot. Because of that, because you know the, the uh, Roman proconsul didn't wouldn't want to do anything. If it, this is really a, something about illegal about Roman law, I'll be the judge. But this is customary to what you are saying, and the words and whatnot. I refuse to be the judge. So they're beaten. They were beating the Sosthenes. And the Greeks were participating. Maybe there's an anti-Semitic Semitic, the, the spirit was there or not. But the whole point is that we could, uh, we cannot for, know for sure that this is the same Sosthenes because it's a common name. But most scholars will say that is probably the same Sosthenes who later on became a Christian. So as a Christ follower, he's writing together. And he's a co-partner. Obviously, the Corinthians know his name. And that's precisely why most scholars think that. What am I emphasizing this much? The reason why I'm repeating myself on this is that there is a reason why Paul mentions his identity as apostle. Because there was a lot of questions and doubts about his apostleship. There's a three qualifications usually needed. One, it has to be one of the twelve, personally chosen by Christ. Two, it, it has to be the one who witnessed risen Christ in person. Three, it has to be the person who's chosen and sent and empowered by Christ with full authority. So, as you know, Paul has these two, the latter two, but Paul was not original one of the twelve. The reason Christ showed up after the resurrection on the way to Damascus when he was trying to persecute and you know, put Christians in the prison and, and even kill them, he encountered and Christ himself called him and revealed him. Why this is important? Because when you hear the apostle, we're talking about apostles of Christ. In the in New Testament, there's a three three types of apostles. Number one is uh, the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, 
apostolos, which means one who is sent. In, in the largest sense, largest sense, every follower of Christ, followers of Christ, including you and me, are sent by Christ into the world. And as, as our church lives out our lives as a sent ones, Christ sent one, that's what it means to be missional, missional Christians. The second meaning is it's apostles of the church. When the church sends people with a letter, with official decisions, they are called apostles. But what Paul is mentioning, his apostleship, is referring to apostleship of Christ. Why is that? Why is that so important? Because the apostleship of Christ is fully vested with Christ's authority to reveal Christ's words and teaching for the Holy Spirit. In other words, equivalent of the Word of God. They were the walking New Testament at, at the time. So in that sense, um, the misuse of the word apostle, that some of the very um, uh, flamboyant preachers and charismatic leaders, who, uh, I like the term or title apostle. I'll, I'll call myself apostle, right? Well, in that sense, we could, we could call all of us apostle in that sense, but not in the sense they're usually equating themselves with Apostle Paul and Apostle of the first century, which is Christ's apostle. No, there is no such a thing. So let's be clear on that. So while Paul was called for a special role as an apostle, every believer, you and me, was also called by sovereign grace and will of God. So when you think about the word call or calling, we could misunderstand, misunderstand as to, it is invitation. God is calling us. God gave us the invitation. And it's for you to really decide whether you choose or not. It's much more than that. Calling of God is actually God's sovereign act, saving work. God calls by changing our heart, even to a point that when you think about where does the faith come from? How do I really believe? The simple uh, message of Christ, the cross is foolishness to us usually, to, if you talk to any non-Christian friends. But why did I open my mouth? I opened I open my heart to that. Because of the calling of God. See, when you, when you think about Paul's theology, you cannot deny the fact that it is God-centered. The spiritual theology of 1 Corinthians, the, the people of Corinth, Christians in Corinth, are utterly man-centered. 
And this is what hinged the point of our, our days as well. When, you, when you, you and I think about true spirituality. So we might think that um, you name a very person that you would admire. He's a sport, sports uh, celebrities like Michael Jordan, or one of the professors you admired. If so and so become Christians, oh, it will be so beneficial to to bring in many unbelievers to that. That's man-centered. What God does to uh, God will do. To the message of the cross is to actually shame, to make the wisdom of the world unwise and foolish. That's a paradoxical thing that God is doing. Second thing Apostle Paul is doing in terms of foundational truth, as he begins his letter, he lays out this point. All believers were set apart as saints together in Christ Jesus. In the beginning, I asked a question. If you have so many problems in writing to this people, or person, or the group of people, and your heart is on fire to get to the urgent need, and then uh, there are some things that you really don't like, in terms of what you see. And this is objectively true. But notice this. These obnoxious, immoral, sexually promiscuous um, people, Paul reminds his foundational truth. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from, from God our, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you believe this? Basically, Paul is calling them saints. Saints. Throughout the church history, Roman Catholicism took this biblical word and took it to the, the extremely wrong concept, far away from the biblical concept of the word saints. It became a special person who has a quality of unreachable holiness. We, we hear often about that so-and-so, and so the Pope will be instated as a saint. Mother Teresa became saint or something along the line. So when you think about the messed up Californians, and they're actually saints, or you could even say, turn to your person, meet Saint J. 
Jeff. <laughs> and you could in- introduce yourself as a good morning. Hi, my name is Saint Song. <laughs> what is Paul doing? Paul is never forgetful about God-centered mindset. What is fundamentally true, although conditionally it is so not true in their lives, Paul is depicting what God has done. Number one, when he says, call to be saints together, or the, to those sanctified, the word sanctification also too, usually we use, and Paul also use it, uses it, as an ongoing, lifelong process of becoming holy. It's a conditional thing. And we, Paul would usually use the word justification, declaring not guilty as a past. But he actually uses intentionally, I think, that First Corinthians and all believers, as a matter of fact, are sanctified. Passant, arrows tense, have been sanctified. You're holy, in other words. This is very, very important point that we need to grasp. With the authority of Christ, Paul is going out full force and saying, don't you know, you have been set apart. This is called a positional holiness. You are holy because God has sent you, set you apart from holy. I, I think I mentioned this in previous messages also too. The concept of holiness is setting personal apart. You have a 10 apples. They're all same apples. But you take one of, one of them apart. This will be mine. And that apple is holy. Because the person who's picked and separated, God himself is holy. Set apart. That we are saints that we are already declared holy. But as of now, in the sanctification process, oh, 1 Corinthians, I guess the, the only thing that we feel good about from time to time reading through 1 Corinthians is that there is a comfort. I thought we were really messed up. But church fights and disputes and all these kind of ugly things are going on and you know, modern-day church, and when we begin to read First Corinthians, oh, we're not that bad. <laughs> Can we think about this? We're also set apart that you and I are saints in Christ Jesus. That is our positional holiness. Imagine that all of us are were orphans going through the streets and stealing food, pickpocketing. We don't really have chance to 
eat three square meals a day. And that we're beaten by these bad people. And as a kid, as children, we're always hungry, always dirty, always desperate for survival. And one day king comes in those middle age, right? Dressed in a normal clothes to find out how his people Normal people will live. And compassionate king comes out and saw you and me and picked you up. You're going to come home with me. And he brought you home, which is his castle. And calling every uh, servant in the castle he declares legally with the symbol of his ring by the authority of kingship in this nation I pronounce this young boy this young girl my prince my princess the heir of this kingdom King's declaration, final and legal, and no one can change it around. This is a positional holiness. You and I belong to God now. He has brought us into the fellowship of Christ, in, in whom we have everything that belongs to God. But can you imagine, conditionally, that during the dinner time, there's so much food on the table, but you would take the drumstick that tastes so good and put it in your pocket. Why? It's habitually, you're always hungry. You always don't have a chance to eat. What if they don't give me the food anymore? So when I go to my room, I'm going to pull that out, and it will be my thing. And because there's so much food, and you don't get to eat that kind of stuff, and it's getting rotten under the bed, and then you don't really wash yourself cleanly. You don't speak like a princess or a prince. But day by day, you begin to realize of your identity, new identity. You act not only on the surface, but from the bottom of your heart, begin to change, transform the way you think as prince and princess of the kingdom. That is the ongoing sanctification process of our all lives. What I want to communicate is this. Next time when you're beaten by the evil one, when you do, without a, without a doubt, make a full failure and you committed sin, you gave into the temptation, or you lost the temper, and you feel lousy and really literally feel disgusted about yourself, remember this foundational truth. 
You belong to God. You are holy. You are saint. One that who called you will be responsible for this sanctification process. What will you choose today and now? The, the evil ones lie? will continually do that. Forget about it. You already messed, messed up? You might as well go just full force cast Sarah Sarah. Will you live today within the detention? John Sutt's point is very helpful. He writes, fundamental to the New Testament Christianity is this ambiguity of the church. He used the word ambiguity as more of a one that is a two double meaning. Two meanings, right? Rather than unclear things. Continuing Sean Stutz quote, we are living in in between times, between the first and second comings of Christ, between what he did when he came and what he will do when he comes again. Between kingdom come and kingdom coming, between the now already of kingdom inaugurated and the not yet of kingdom consummated. It is the key to understanding of 1 Corinthians and of the Christian life. John Newton expressed it well. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But I still am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So let's remember this. God's calling is not only positional holiness, but calling to pursue holy living. And third and last foundational truth is this. All believers were given grace for salvation, gifts for the Christian life, and Christ's work for sustaining sanctification. Verse 4 through 9 is Paul's thanksgiving. Now that greeting has been done, grace and peace, and grace is for what God has done already in salvation. Peace is the result of that, the peace with God. And then after that, he gives thanks to God. But notice, Paul is very intentional always. We sense Trinitarian theology here and in the form of the, each time frame. The first one is given grace for salvation as a past tense. Grace of God given to you, and you come to know Christ and believe that his, their testimony is confirmed, which means through faith they believed. The work of the God the Father, grace, and secondly, gifts of the Holy Spirit for the Christian life. Every believer in Christ has been given Spirit's gift in order that we could be interdependent. We belong to one body, several different members with different gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some are helpers, some are encouragers, some are 
wise in counseling. Some of them are more gifted in teaching. Some of them are more merciful in expression of ministry. Some of them are articulate in terms of analytical thinking and thoughts. The body of Christ has given, given. The work of the Spirit, presently. And then Christ's work for sustaining sanctification is the future. Ultimately, we will be glorified. We will be like Christ. We will no longer suffer with even not only the power of sin, not to mention penalty of sin, but also with presence of sin. There will be no more dying there. No more struggling with our sinful nature there anymore. The work of the Son. So when you think about calling, when you think about calling of God, obviously it sounds almost like the election of God. It is. Because the work of the Holy Spirit and God's work expressed in the election of God is actually calling of the calling of God. This is a Paul's way of thinking God-centered paradigm of our Christian life and salvation. Always remember that the paradox and the mystery of God's sovereignty is that it doesn't eliminate human responsibility. It doesn't oppose. Actually, God would never command that then. So we are to choose to pursue holy living. But that choosing and depending on the power of the God actually comes from God. Let's read that verse 4 to uh, 9 again. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you look at what Paul's encouraging and giving thanks, Paul saw all speech and all knowledge. This has to the two dimension of that, because of the Corinthians' uh, zeal for the wisdom and for learning how to speak, eloquent speech also too. Paul's actually encouraging them, affirming them, and more so because of their spiritual gifts. Some scholars, you know, commentaries will say that they might have more uh, very, very rampant, you know, speaking in tongue, keep gifts of speaking in tongue more than any place else and more than uh, any other places, maybe gift of prophecy which is rampant there too. They were 
given everything. So they were thinking this is the spirituality to use that to, to show off. And then Paul comes on a different angle. As soon as this is over, there another thing is this. When you think about this grace, grace, let's remember three things. Grace is of God. God initiates. Men never can initiate. And the only qualification for grace, to receive grace, is you have to be disqualified to, to receive it. It is, it is for undeserving. There is no boasting in God's sovereign work. And it is in grace, is in Christ and Christ alone. So instead of, when you think about the fellowship of Christ, Instead of just intellectual things, we're talking about spiritual renewal, renewal, spiritual union with Christ. We're becoming one. And then in Christ, every spiritual blessing is available for us. So that grace. Do you notice when Paul mentions about all gifts are not lacking in any gift? But he also mentions, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he actually points to that, to these people who have an over-realized eschatology. Don't forget, Christ is coming back. Until that, your completeness in God is actually not yet complete until the second coming of Christ. He indirectly corrects their paradigm about spirituality. And lastly, the, the ultimate certainty of our sanctification, to be guiltless and holy when Jesus comes back, when we stand at the judgment seat, the ultimate certainty is not my willful determination because you will fail but it is the faithfulness of God I could let go of my father's hand heavenly father's hand but he will not he will never let go of my hand he will complete in making me just like his son What a comforting thought. And my prayer is that we will never get, never take this for granted. In Romans 8, verse 29 to 30, let, let me give a little hint as, before I read it. I think Paul's posture in this is going through what God is doing in sovereign will. The entire salvation from beginning to end is God's work. He's emphasizing that. So the word that we're looking for, the present tense of sanctification, is not blatantly, explicitly revealed here. But even that, as we are participating in the work of the Holy Spirit and obey and submit, is covered by Sovereign will. 
sovereignty of God. Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he, will, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In another passage in uh, Philippians 1.6, St. Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as I conclude, as, I, as we're going into the, uh, the Lord's Supper, let's remember two things. That we are called saints. God has separate, set us apart as his people. Let's remember to whom we belong. Let's remember that we are child, prince and princess of God, the king of kings. The second thing is, let's fully lean on God's faithfulness. Let's begin to look at our, not only our individual life, but our church life in God-centered perspective. God is faithful. He will sustain us until when Jesus comes back, that we will be declared guiltless, blameless, that we will be holy because of the work of the Holy Spirit through God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this seemingly mundane and truth. And that is actually, if it's really true, revolutionizing in every part of our life. So we do pray that today, as we come to the Lord's table, and as we share the Lord's Supper, we pray that you will awaken our souls and renew our hearts and ignite our passion for holy living. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.